It's Jay's birthday, and it's also NeuroNoodle Podcast birthday. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Happy birthday, Happy birthday <laughs> to you. To you. Happy birthday, birthday, dear Jay. Happy birthday to you. One year of doing shows, Dr. Laura. It only feels like two. Well, you know. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is John Anderson, and you are listening to the NeuroNoodle podcast. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast, featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show John Anderson, bio-neurofeedback trainer with the Stens Corporation. But before we get to John, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking and Interested Brain Hacker. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. They specialize in delicious gluten and dairy-free sweetbreads. Everyone will love. Skip, they ship all across the country. That's good to know, Pete. All the way up to Alaska? All the way. <laughs> well, we are all about gut health, aren't we? At ingredients count, Pete. I'll be on their yeah. website today. I'm gluten-free myself. Oh, John, my wife tried some of this. Uh, you, you'll hear it on the podcast. Uh, big thumbs up. I think I'm already at a negative with this sponsor. Of course, I said that last week. <laughs> I think she put another order in. Uh, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. My name is Pete, and today we chat with another neurofeedback legend, John Anderson. John, welcome back to the show, my friend. Hi, Pete. Good to be here. Could you first give a, a background on yourself for the new listeners? I started doing neurofeedback and biofeedback in 1974. And I've been teaching for STENS since 2000, so about 21 years. Currently, our classes are online, and they're available at the STENS website, stens-biofeedback.com. I spent six years working in a public elementary school uh, doing neurofeedback, which was a, a major eye-opening experience for me. I got to see uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, EEGs, which was amazing. And something I learned from Jay is there's no substitute for looking at a lot of EEGs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently working with Fred Schaefer of uh, Biosource Software, and we're putting together a neurofeedback tutor for those who are interested in training uh, materials online. Now, you sent an article on the thalamus. You know, I've been, th I've been interested in the thalamus, uh, obviously, for a long time, because, of course, it's such a central mediator in the brain. The consciousness, the whole consciousness question, my early days were... Uh, in yoga, that's how I got into biofeedback was through yoga. I was uh, serendipitously introduced to it by a, a fellow person in the ashram I was living in. And he said uh, he was moving to California, of all places, to uh, study with Bubba Frijan, a great guru out there, apparently. He says, do you want to do biofeedback? And I said, sure. <laughs> What's biofeedback? <laughs> 
So he took me over and gave me some training and I was on the job and I've had the bug ever since. And, um, but I've always had that interest in consciousness and, and uh, Jay's 2005 uh, talk at the ISNR really piqued my interest because he talked about various aspects of consciousness in that talk and about the glia and the uh, gap junction cells and things like that. And, and uh, so that kept me interested in that. And then I ran across this article by uh, Byung Kyung Min. I thought, whoa, this is interesting. It's certainly just a piece of the puzzle, but it certainly is uh, a, a great uh, theoretical piece that that covers a lot of the bases of sort of the gateway. And I remember reading back in the day, uh, a Barbonell's article about gates, states, rhythms, and resonances. And basically he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about uh, the gate theory of consciousness and uh, information throughput and that sort of thing. So as humans, we kind of think that we uh, uh, perceive the world accurately, that we perceive the world in a flow, that we understand what's going on. It's all this kind of unitary consciousness, and we're not aware of the sort of stepwise process that we go through and, and how much of what we perceive is really a projection from our own consciousness and memory system and, and the reciprocal connections between all of those sensory processing areas and the input structures and, and how all of that mediates what we see and what we filter out. And so this seemed to talk about a lot of that, uh, you know, in the sense of the six different people who saw the same car accident, you get six different witness testimony because it's completely erroneous because you can't trust witness testimony because everybody filters differently and everybody sees a different segment of the event and interprets it differently and projects their own interpretation differently. And so this article about uh, the thalamus and the thalamocortical relay uh, system and and the uh, reticular nucleus of the thalamus seemed like a very interesting uh, way to access those concepts and to talk about those concepts, at least uh, open the door to the discussion. The reticular nucleus is an absolute key to the thalamic function. The thalamus doesn't make anything rhythmic at all without the reticular nucleus. It provides the acetylcholine, which provides the rhythmicity. But, you know, the thalamus isn't the only part of uh, consciousness, but it's a key part of it. Mm -hmm. If you don't have thalamic function, you don't have sensory function. And obviously, being able to detect the outside world and interact with it uh, with your senses is a, a key part of being uh, consciously aware of the outside. The reticular nucleus also quits providing acetylcholine as you drop into stage one drowsiness, stage one sleep is drowsiness, mm -hmm. the alpha quits and you see alpha dropout and theta start to happen. Well, you can still be conscious enough to function in stage one drowsing. People drive the car all the time in kind of a highway hypnosis. They get four or five exits down the freeway and they don't even know how they got there, but they were in their lane. They didn't have an accident. They drive, didn't drive into a ditch or I, I grew up in North Dakota. They have ditches there. This is California. You don't hit the cement wall, you know? So, you know, you're not going to be uh, really a great driver because if something happens, you have to alert, orient, and then response. So your reaction time's slow, but you weren't so unconscious that you you know, were asleep and had a 
a total crash. So, you know, the reticular nucleus is a key piece for turning on the sensory system because without it, you don't have any sensory relay. Uh, but it's, it does turn off before you do. It's not the only thing. It, we actually had a, a large study after my talk in 2005 that kind of excited you. I was approached by a fellow who asked me the only silly question I ever got is, Jay, would you like to look at this data? And he said, <laughs> I, I've got, I've got uh, three people that have 12 EEG recordings that were quantified. And somewhere during those 12, they woke up out of their coma. And uh, we want you to blindly identify when they were unconscious and when they regained consciousness. And they sent me, you know, you know I said, of course. I mean, it's, as I say, it's a silly question. Of course, I'll look at the data. They sent me cues and I, I quickly emailed him and I said, you know, this, this is step two. Where's the EEGs these are based on? Because I can't take step two unless I take step one or I'm going to step in it. And, and, and you will. If you don't look at the EEG first, you're, you're going to make a mistake, a big one yep. sometimes. Yep. So they sent me all the EEGs. They had already sent these three people series of 12 to pretty much anybody they could find that had some chance of figuring them out. All the big names had already seen them. But, you know, he, uh, Dr. Dafina heard my talk and he asked me the silly question and sent me the data. So I got the EEGs and, you know, the QEG eliminates the spatial and temporal dance of the EEG. You get it averaged across time and it, you lose the dynamics. If you've seen enough EEGs, you can look at it and go, you know, that, that one's working and that one's not, you know? So uh, if, if it's just sitting there like a lump on a log doing nothing, you can have a lot of alpha and be in an alpha coma and not be responsive. In fact, it's a, a very poor prognosis to be in an alpha coma. Uh, alpha in the front, non-responsive to sensory input. So the thalamus can be operating full of alpha, but you could be still in a coma. Looking at the dynamics, I basically said, you know, Coma, 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 awake. And the other one, coma, 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 awake. The third one was kind of a trick question. They woke up, went back into a coma and woke up again. And I got that one right as well. And after that, they got $6.8 million from the US military to work on a project with uh, 33 soldiers in a coma. They had been on a coma for a year. And with a Glasgow Kono scale less than eight, which means there's no response at all. Mm. Now, being in a coma for a year gives you essentially no chance to recover. They say less than 10%. You know, that's just because they don't want to say you don't have any chance, you know, because once in a while they're wrong, you know, people pop up that are unexpected. But when they say you really have less than 10% chance, it's way less than 10%. And again, we woke up uh, 27 out of 33 of, of those, uh, 10 were in, in treatment. Um, you know, they lost legs and arms and things like that, that they had to then, they, they were available for therapy now instead of being in a coma. But others went home. Uh, but a third of the people we woke up were not happy with the outcome. They would have preferred to have just been let go. You know, you walk by and somebody spits on the ground you walked on, you know, they were upset. And uh, I, I, I 
quit working in that area because I can't tell ahead of time whether they're going to be upset or not. That, you know, what's the ethics of waking somebody up out of a coma? You can't get informed consent. You know, they're in a coma. The family, they'll sign anything. Here, sign here, I'll wake up your grandma. I mean, that's coercive informed consent and that's no good either. And again, a third of the people, which you couldn't predict, you know, one guy's missing his left hemisphere. He was happy as a lark, but we didn't judge that because we thought, well, maybe that's just pathology, you know, um, missing one hemisphere can give you a, an odd uh, affect, but the rest of them, we actually, you know, asked in, in a deep way. And again, uh, the family was always, the families were happy to have them back, but a third of them were upset. And, you know, you couldn't tell, you know, some of them were really physically very, very damaged and they were happy as a lark. One guy just lost IQ points. You know, he had been very bright and now he was an average adult and he tried to commit suicide repeatedly. So if you can't tell, I mean, I can do a lot of different things. So I just decided that's just what I'll just set aside. We showed the proof of concept. You can wake people out of a coma. It's an ugly process. You, you don't want to end up uh, necessarily doing it with somebody. Let's uh, take a real quick peek at at uh, what the deal was on this. So uh, if you're in a metabolic coma because you have were anoxic, your uh, chance of uh, recovery is essentially shot by three months. If you're traumatically induced, TBI induced, you, you make it to a year before you don't have any chance. So if you go anoxic, you now car flips over, you're underwater, you drown, you go hypoxic, they pull you out, they resuscitate you, but you're in a coma. Well, anoxia leads to glutamate cascade and cell death, and you don't really recover very well from that. Uh, TBI, on the other hand, you have a much better chance. This is a traditional treatment. Again, 10% or less recover. The, the group that I was working with, basically, if you're in an anoxic coma, you have a still a fairly good chance of recovery, but there are some that don't recover. Uh, this is traumatic-induced standard treatment. This is the approach that we've got uh, with the group at uh, um, the International Research, uh, Brain, uh, Research Foundation. And uh, all of them come back to a certain extent, some with a, a, a mild uh, uh, impairment still, uh, minimally conscious, but uh, most of them uh, wake up fully. So, uh, um, you know, traditional, uh, this is how they come in. Uh, most of them extremely uh, vegetative, like coma coma, uh, some vegetative and some minimally conscious, but none of them uh, are fully conscious. When they leave, if they leave, you know, it's a pretty good chance of recovery. Uh, some of the factors that we basically look at, the key elements of the recovery, background idling rhythm, that's the thalamus. So it's a, it's a major piece of what we look for. Then we look at statistical deviations of the, the brain activity. We look specifically for delta excess. Uh, delta excess is from white matter damage. And if you've got enough white matter damage, you're less likely to recover. And then coherence, the connectivity. If the connectivity is really extremely damaged, you may not recover. This is actually three of the cases. This is the baseline, and this is the recovery. You can see in the baseline, these are all occipital electrodes, and there's no background rhythm. Here, 
there's a peak frequency that's poking itself up. It's a little on the slow side. It's down at the seven, eight border of uh, dipping into theta, but it's, it's got a rhythm. And it doesn't matter if it's too slow. If you've got a rhythm, you can be con- become mm-hmm. conscious. Now, you might not be the sharpest person ever if you've got a seven hertz alpha, but, um, but you could be conscious. Um, uh, again, statistics, there were a lot of outliers and those cleared. The amount of slow content actually dropped some, but not dramatically. And obviously, the connectivity improved dramatically. Mm-hmm. Here's the second case. Again, background mm-hmm. alpha peak popped up. It's too slow, but there's a peak as opposed to no peak. Uh, stats normalized largely, but not all. The delta went way down and the coherence improved. It didn't fully normalize. You don't have to be perfect to be conscious. You know? <laughs> uh, we, we, we recover quite a few with a lot of things not quite straight yet, but they're conscious and aware of their surroundings and involved in their therapy. A lot of so people here, walking around these days that are sort of minimally conscious. <laughs> yeah. In fact, the Bayesian brain, the, the ability to project what you're you're going to see and then you see what you expect to see. Right. Uh, there's a lot of people that have somewhat lowered expectations apparently because I, a lot of people don't seem to be able to really take in what's, what's truly out there. Um, what, what are you doing to pull them out of their uh, unconsciousness? That's a good question. Uh, for about a week or so, you change the neurochemistry. Uh, you excite the excitability uh, neurochemistry and you inhibit the sedating neurochemistry. You, Narcan, you block the, the opioids. Sure. Well, that's going to put the person in pain. This, this is essentially uh, not a pleasant experience. You get the brain jacked up to the max chemically. At that point, we put on stimulators on the hands and feet. Uh, John, you've probably seen median nerve. They get a little twitch in the thumb. You know, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the, it's, it's a little sudden twitch. And if you turn it up, you get the wrist to twitch a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, if you turn it way up, the whole arm goes. And that's the level that we were at. Wow. Uh, both arms, both feet. The pattern of stimulation was, was a waveform that you couldn't predict. Uh, when it was going to occur, you know, these are painful stimuli. Um, And nobody ever saw that in the hospital. They'd pull the the curtains around before they did this. And only people that were directly involved were able to watch. Um, But it looks like they're having a seizure. Uh, Their arms and legs are flailing uh, because of the stimulation. But you get a 40% increase in brain metabolism at that point. Quite a few people woke up at that point. And they don't wake up saying, oh, my God, I'm awake. Thank goodness. Um, You're torturing them awake, basically. They they awaken and don't remember it later, but they awaken screaming and kicking. And it's it's an ugly return. But it works. Uh, And again, they don't usually have a good recollection of the moment that they come back later. (laughs) And then you have to maintain that. You, You can't immediately swap all the meds back the way they were. You have to maintain a certain level of excitability of the nervous system. But after a few days, you've you've backed off and uh, you have to have an appropriate level for them to maintain consciousness. But it's a a brutal process. You don't tickle them with a peacock feather and whisper in their ear, wake up. 
you know, the, they already tried that, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, these things don't really work when somebody's in a severe coma. I, anyway, uh, you can see here is a pretty good background alpha coming out of somebody who had no alpha, a lot of stats out, only a couple minor stats out, a lot of delta way down, but the left hemisphere's uh, got a little bit delta left in it. The connectivity isn't right, and it, it remained not so good. But again, you don't have to be perfect to be conscious. You know, we, uh, we get you in the general ballpark, and usually people pop back up. Uh, the ones who did not pop back up uh, with the peripheral stimulation, we go to a C2 stimulation, which is kind of like using a cattle prod to the base of the brain. Uh, C2 act activates the entire brain. Don't do this at home. Uh, and again, what's the ethics of it? There was only one hospital, basically, that would allow this procedure. That was Kessler Hospital in New Jersey. Now, I don't know what the ethics in New Jersey are different than elsewhere, but they were the only hospital that would allow this. Uh, again, you, you can't get an informed consent, and the IRBs don't necessarily line up to allow this kind of a thing. If they're awake, then they have a choice. I mean, your, your guy who tried to commit suicide, I mean, that's certainly a, a viable option in that situation if the person uh, feels that that's the way to go. But he wouldn't have had that choice if he had still been in a coma. Uh, it, it's still, it's a brutal recovery oh, process. Yeah, and Yeah, no doubt. You know, uh, um, the, the one time this was used, I think, appropriately, uh, I don't know if you remember back, there was a mine collapse, the Sega mine. There was a bunch of miners trapped in a compartment that they set up way in the back. They set up a, a, a barrier and they, they kept themselves separate from the rest of the mine to avoid the, the, the toxic gases. And, mm. you know, they dug and dug and finally made it to them. And they, there's only one person still alive and he was in a coma. Uh, but they dragged him out, ran him in, uh, to the hospital. They got a hold of the group in New Jersey right away. Uh, they were there the next day. They recovered him the next day, hmm. you know, and, and you know, he was a little, he had, he had gone anoxic. Remember that's, you lose some brain cells with that. Yeah. So he, he came back, he could speak, but he was, you could tell he was a little dulled from the experience. And, right. uh, but it, uh, that was an appropriate recovery. I mean, the, uh, uh, quick and easy, essentially by comparison. It's the kind of a process that you don't necessarily want to line up for. But, you know, you're in a coma for a year. Uh, you know, um, the likelihood of your recovery at that point is pretty much non-existent. And right. uh, the, there's no spontaneous recovery really at that point. This idea of consciousness or another maybe clinical term, more user-friendly, is awareness. And a lot of therapies kind of hinge on this awareness state and again it's it's loose it's clinical and it's the idea you have to be aware that you have these thoughts going on that are impacting how you're reacting to your environment and then ultimately feeling about you know whatever's going on for you we can you know bring in default mode network and, and talk about nomenclature and things why is it important for folks to be aware with this idea of hey we're not our thoughts um, necessarily meaning reality is somewhat subjective and interpretable but if we have this more automatic process going that generates our conclusions of our experience right if that's a hypothesis here yeah then then what's the value and again that's because i i you know clinically i i see that that's the entry 
into folks unconscious, right? There's all kinds of things that would allow or inhibit that too. But if you're working with an individual, and I'm assuming we have a bunch of folks out there that are listening that might just be like, what is a thalamus, you know? But I do think everybody can relate to their experience of consciousness or at least the effort to be aware, you know, hey, I'm, I'm in the middle, we're talking about driving, I'm in the middle of a road rage incident. How do I correct this, right? And that's through awareness. Just trying to maybe introduce this conversation of awareness, consciousness uh, as being the place, air quotes, where you can then maybe at least consider contributions to where we are. So hopefully that at least allows Well, you know, your road rage incident. So from the perspective of uh, sort of most spiritual traditions is that you want to begin to allow more of your consciousness into conscious awareness. So much of what we do experience, think all that's pretty non-cognitive, non-conscious. How did that person get to that road rage incident? So it's, yeah, it's definitely worth dealing with, okay, here I am in it. I become aware that I'm in it. How do I deal with that? But how about let's back up. Uh, When I worked at the school, we had kids that were there because they were, you know, fighting with everybody. And I had this one kid, you know, he, we did neurofeedback with him for a while and he started not fighting. And I said to him one day, I said, well, you know, you're not fighting. That's really great. Uh, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, it used to be if somebody bumped me in line, I would just turn around and pound him. And, and now if somebody bumps me in line, I turn around and see if he's one of my buds or if it was an accident or something. If he did it on purpose, then I pound him. <laughs> But, you know, I, I, I think about it a little bit. I have a, this kind of lead time where I can uh, assess the situation. He didn't say that, of course. But, you know, from my perspective, consciousness is about bringing more and more and more and more of that that we have going on into our conscious perception. And that's, that's a lifelong process. That's why people practice meditation of various kinds for you know, decades and decades, because it takes that long to unpack or unpeel that onion of all that garbage and nonsense and stuff that we tell ourselves, you know, the self, the messages that we learned uh, that are used to be functional. And we're, I mean, the the hypervigilant person who was abused as a child, well, all that stuff was very functional for them. They had to learn to really perceive the negative uh, uh, affect that was coming at them and get out of the way as fast as they could. Well, now they're an adult and any little hint of any negative affect and they're running for the, for the closet. That's not particularly functional for them anymore. And so they got to unpack that whole history and all that, those layers and find where that started and begin to uh, incorporate the knowledge that, it's not actually happening. I, I can actually perceive the world as it is and back off from all of those preconceived notions. That's just one aspect of it. Right. And, and the idea of increasing this lead time, as you called it, that seems like the whole shebang in, in some extent, to some extent, right? If you can increase your ability to be able to you know, be present and process maybe what's contributing to where you are, and that's a simple throwaway sentence, but to be able to do that is a big deal. You're, you're somehow, again, my, my words, but escaping from some automatic unconscious processing to be present, right? That's a big deal. And as you say, a lifetime. Yep. And you're also talking about switching, right? And flexibility. A lot of our um, 
neuropsych testing, uh, you know, we're testing the, the frontal lobe, uh, but also the systems of, of being, being flexible. How do you switch from your internal world to the out, outside world? How do you mm -hmm. alternate a sequence? How do you uh, alternate sets of information? How do you go back and forth from, okay, here's the routine that I memorized. This is how you play guitar, but, oh, we have to improvise now. So how do you, how do you move back and forth? And, you know, that's adaptability. Um, you know, you're measuring executive functioning and adapting to the world as it is. And so, you know, it's not just, it, it is the instincts that we're, you know, we come to the world with, and then it's the instincts that get trained, especially if there's a trauma, but it's, you know, how do you train this flexibility? Um, and I think that, that that's a huge, huge question we're answering also. So flexible from, uh, I don't know how much, it's not a conscious choice to get out of a coma. Obviously you have to blast yourself out of a coma. But at some point, you know, especially when we're doing neurofeedback or talking about, you know, people thinking about coming for neurofeedback and they're trying to improve their uh, their work life, they're trying to improve their workload, they're trying to um, survive, you know, the COVID, you know, environment. And so it's being adaptable and flexible and, and being able to shift back and forth from routine to, to novelty. And that's, I think, is adaptability. The PTSD uh, subject having... Um, essentially a hyper-reactivity. And that's neurophysiologically based. If your amygdala is charged up with a primary emotion, fear, anger, uh, uh, the, the, the primary emotions, not shame or guilt, but, but active primary emotion. If you have a sensory input, it's exaggerated. The, the amygdala changes the thalamic gating and the signal arrives at the cortex early and large. The person is jumpy. You know, you bump them and they, they, they throttle you. Well, um, that was knee-jerk reaction that mm -hmm. didn't take the second cycle. He was aware of the stimulus and responded. Conscious awareness isn't awareness. Uh, awareness is the first pass. It, you have to lay down a memory and then compare your perception to that memory for you to be consciously aware. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Libet in, at UC, uh, UC San Francisco in 1979 published a paper uh, showing that conscious awareness actually takes 500 milliseconds. That's one P300 cycle to lay down the memory and 200 milliseconds of the second cycle to get it back to the frontal lobe to compare the experience the, the, to the memory. That 500 milliseconds is uh, a lot of time, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you, can, you can perceive a half a second, you know? Um, but you don't think of yourself as a half a second behind the times uh, because you reference yourself back to the beginning of the, the, the stream, uh, the sensory stream. So the, the person who uh, reacts without conscious awareness ends up being the person who is again, just a, a reflexive a reaction. And right. re, re, reflexes aren't always, you know, I mean, it's, it's one thing to hit your knee and, and kick, you know, the doctor tests your reflexes. If you reflexively uh, beat up the person behind you in line because you got tapped, um, you know, that's, that's excessive. Unfortunately, it takes uh, a, a lot of intervention to calm the limbic system enough so that you can actually get a normal response. Right. It's, it's entirely possible to do. Yeah. We, we, we identify, do all the time. 
we do, we see over arousal, we see social perception, you know, we, we can predict that the person's got difficulties with these things and actually train them to wind that wind down their arousal level yeah. and uh, to open up their affective perception. So they're not just reflexively reacting without understanding the, the, the emotional situation. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we work with us all the time, but there's a foundational process that uh, PTSD reflexive reaction uh, is, is built in. And again, probably was adaptive at some point. Yeah. But uh, not when you're standing in line in school. No. But when you're in an abusive environment and somebody touches you and you run like a jackrabbit, that's a good reflex. A friend of mine, Don Bars, um, many, many years ago now, um, uh, was doing uh, visual uh, ERPs, uh, visual mm. CPT tasks. He looked at all the explosive kids that he had and he found a gigantic P100. Mm. It was early and it was large. Mm. He didn't really understand what that was. Uh, he actually went to Dr. Neuer at UCLA, paid him for a consult uh, to see whether the data was real and should be published or whether it was you know, just some anomaly that he had picked up or whatever. And uh, uh, Dr. Neuer basically looked at the data and, and said, no, it's real. It should be published. And he refused to take the money. I mean, he had a $400 check for the hour, um, but uh, he refused to take that. Uh, because he said it was science, you know, it, it, he doesn't take money for science. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but that, that excessive response is again, the amygdala changing the thalamic gating and uh, that, that basic process uh, that the limbic system can hijack that cortex anytime it wants. So you have to learn how to control the limbic system. Right. So you have more lead time. So many interventions are good for that. Neurofeedback is one of the one of the best interventions for that. But there's a lot of, I mean, meditation takes a really long time. Uh, neurofeedback's a lot faster, but meditation does the same kind of thing if it's done properly. So, so when you're talking about neurofeedback, guys, so what what structures are you hitting? And I, I know it's a case by case, you know, question, but what are you thinking about? You're thinking about, you know, hitting amygdala regions. Are, are you going after the, you know, the cingulate cortex and the switching? Are you going down, down deeper or up more cortical when, when you're making these interventions? It's personalized. If the individual has fast alpha and beta, that's, that's both markers of over arousal. You can wind down the arousal level uh, yep. so that they're not quite as much already in the starting blocks. Um, uh, and, uh, but if they've got a, a limbic trigger, uh, you, you end up having to identify that's a different intervention. Uh, a limbic trigger is usually previous experience that's got your limbic system primed uh, with, with affect. And for those, you end up having to deal with the, the location that perceives affect. And it, 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 you, you train stabilizing rhythms. Um, uh, the, the EEG has the sensory motor rhythm which is the same thing as a sleep spindle. At night, your sleep spindle keeps you from responding to simple uh, stimuli. It, 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 it stabilizes the brain so you don't, everything you hear doesn't wake you up. Mm -hmm. You're still hearing it, but you're not going to respond by waking up. It stabilizes you. And during the day, that same frequency ends up being an anticonvulsant if you have seizures or a stabilizing agent if you've got out of control uh, affect and, and paroxysms in the EEG. You know, we can wind down the arousal level. We can train stabilizing rhythms. 
Um, the limbic system, if it's really cranked up, can give you dischargers and you can spot those and you can suppress those during the training. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really kind of astounding how much um, we can end up doing with neurofeedback. Uh, who would have thought that you can train somebody who's an intractable epileptic how not to have a seizure right. when the best medicines in the world and the best neurologists and epileptologists in the world have worked with the client and they basically say, well, it's, you know, we've tried everything we can. It's time to go for brain surgery. <laughs> well, you know, brain surgery for seizures is, is if you have to, uh, you know, brain surgery might be the, the last option that the traditional medical community offers you. I have a series of, of intractable epileptics that have been trained not to have seizures and they're medication-free, seizure-free to this date. Now, some of them for four or five years uh, that they were scheduled basically for brain surgery. The surgery is, you know, historically they would chop off the anterior third of your temporal lobe or anterior half of your temporal lobe. That, that's pretty brutal. Uh, Barry Sturman did a nice piece of research with Delee Lance. They, the, these people were scheduled for brain surgery. You got a bad hemisphere here. The good hemisphere over here is being taught how to be bad by the bad hemisphere discharges. They go, you know, they communicate and the good side is going bad too. If they do neurofeedback, the bad side gets better, but so does the good side. They both get, they both get better. If you cut out the bad side, the good side gets better, but that bad side is gone. I mean, there's no way to improve the function of the piece that you cut out. And at least try know, neurofeedback first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first no to harm, first do no harm is the neurofeedback approach. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's a lot to suggest that uh, all those old fashioned surgeries where you chopped off the first third or half are, have been replaced. Those old surgeries had a 50% chance of a 50% reduction in seizures at three years after surgery. If you give me a half a chance and I'm having intractable epilepsy, I will take that chance. But man, a 50% chance of a half a chance of reduction, uh, it doesn't sound like a really optimal thing. So the new, new surgical approaches are, well, we don't take out the big chunk. We go for the little, it's like a lumpectomy instead of a mastectomy. They go in for a little lump. They take out a little nuclear body and they think that might do it. And, and it's less destructive. But, you know, seizures are a network problem. Everybody is looking for the focus, but it's a network right. problem. Right. Uh, if, you, if you go for the focus-related surgeries, the efficacy dropped to 30%. Yeah, you have a 30% positive outcome at three years. They can always go in and take another little piece. Again, it's brain it, surgery. Uh, yeah. And hey, I, 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 if you need brain surgery, you know, I, I had it. Uh, I recommend it highly if you have to have it. But if you don't have to have it, don't be gliding up for some brain surgery, you know. Um, and neurofeedback may allow somebody with intractable epilepsy to avoid a brain surgery. Uh, I, I would recommend it highly only if you absolutely have to have it. Not, not Don't go in for brain surgery on a whim. Um, you know, back to the flexibility question that uh, Laura was talking about. I saw an interview with James Taylor and Yo-Yo Ma, and they were doing a collaboration. And they were talking about improvisation. And James Taylor said he doesn't read music. He just learned everything, you know, by rote or whatever. And Yo-Yo Ma, of course, is a classically trained uh, cellist and 
And so Yo-Yo Ma was saying he really had a hard time with improvisation because he was used to reading uh, music off a page. And James Taylor said, well, he can improvise pretty easily, but he can't read music off a page. And and so uh, it was an interesting conversation about that kind of flexibility of of, uh, working through those limitations. And so it it kind of brought that to mind that... uh, well, and the other thing, uh, Jay was talking about a trigger, limbic trigger, and I was thinking of the olfactory input, and the olfactory input uh, really bypasses the thalamus altogether. Yeah. And so it, in a lot of our clients who have uh, traumatic histories, they have an olfactory input that the father comes home smelling of beer and cigarettes, for example. So anywhere, any place, no matter where they are, if they smell beer and cigarettes, they're triggered and they're hypervigilant and hyperreactive. So we have to also, as, as Jay was saying, we have to find that piece and deal with that as well. Because that's completely non-cognitive. They're not thinking that. Yeah. They're not aware of that at a cognitive level. level. So I mean, it's a fascinating area to think about. And so much of our practice, at least my practice, always has been the clients with a trauma history. And settling that down and calming that down and dealing with those focal areas in some cases, but a lot of times it's more a general training to teach them to get back into rhythmicity. And and it's highly effective. When you were talking about seizures, Jay, I was also thinking of migraine. I mean, I have clients who get rid of a migraine within a session, you know, actively ongoing full-blown migraine within a session of neurofeedback. And, you know, they've been on meds for years and actually their responses, they get pissed off. They get really angry about it because they say, why didn't no, and nobody ever tell me that this was possible. I've been taking these somewhat destructive meds for, you know, most of my life. And, and here I can get rid of this in a half an hour. You know, this is, somebody should be telling me about this. I've had the experience of the patients getting upset because of the success as well. Um, (laughs) You know, and yeah, it's understandable. I mean, they've, it's like you've been sold a bill of goods, you know, uh, yeah. I, I believe this line I've been being fed and, and it's not like the doctor is giving them medication is no. giving them a, a, a something that's something outside the standard of practice. Right. It's just that neurofeedback isn't part of that standard of practice, unfortunately. Right. If you're ta- I'm sorry, if you're talking about, you know, post-traumatic stress, I mean, how many people who've been through trauma go to psychotherapy? In, in not knocking psychotherapy, but, you know, you can go for years and years and do the talk therapy and the frontal lobe, you know, cognitive, uh, you know, changing how you think will affect your, your emotion, you know, that it, it has a time and a place and there's an efficacy to it. But if, if things are rooted deeper, you know, um, bottom up kind of stuff, they're, they're still not being, you know, afforded this other intervention either. Yeah. It really does help to end up getting the physiology and anatomy straight. And then all the talk therapy and other therapies work so much better. Yes. I mean, if, if the person is actually functional, the, the therapist actually can work with them much better than if they're broken. It's astounding how much more intact somebody can be after, you know, you, neurofeedback might take 30, 40, 60, 100 sessions, depending upon the circumstance. If you've got a lifetime of, uh, of pathology, uh, 40 sessions, 60 sessions, 100 sessions, that's nothing by comparison right. to having a life full of this. So, and it, it, it takes time to unlearn something. It yeah. took time to learn it. It takes time to unlearn it. I remember a client... You know, I was talking about 
you know, asking him where he ever feels safe. And he says, nowhere is safe. I'm never safe. I could be in a locked, you know, room in a locked house and, you know, with armed guards, but I wouldn't be safe because he was never safe. And yeah. so that has, that takes a long time to unlearn. That's the point, Jay, right? And, and everybody else, like it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be, but it's not a matter of talk therapy, like, hey, think this or do this. My experience has been a lot with families and parents and and this idea of knowledge being the key to change, and it just doesn't work that way. You can know stuff. It's about how you access it and utilize it, and if we have these systems in place that are you know, directing us to respond a different way, then it's not about what you know. It's It's how things work, right? So, yeah. John, what's the, be- what's the best way for people to learn uh, more about you? I-, I know you're retired, but do you want us to send anybody anywhere? <laughs> send anybody anywhere? Do you have a link? Because uh, we are getting per- a lot of traffic now. Sure. Then go to my website. It's uh, neurofeedback-institute.com. They've, there's a lot of information on there. Uh, if they want the educational part, they can go to the STENS website that I mentioned earlier. Uh, for the other educational materials, they can go to uh, Biosource Software and the .com and uh, pick up those sources. We'll put all the links in the in the podcast notes. Good. Okay, John, th- thank you again, neurofeedback legend. Oh yes, <laughs> he throws around that legend. You know that's well. Just... You get you guys are legends. Nah, you train. J- you train Jay's... Laura. You train me. Jay's a legend. I'm, I'm just sitting here in my chair. You get so old, people call you a legend. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of code for, hey, get out of my way. (laughs) You know, yeah, old and in the way. You know, Uh, Grateful Dead's uh, album. So, yep. And Jay, happy birthday! Uh, Happy birthday, Jay! Days ago, seventy-two years old. It's it's a lot of fun getting here. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff still to do. So uh, I'm happy plan in my life. So I'll keep going. We're better for having you around, Jay. I'm telling you. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. Again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking. We like Patreon supporters, don't we, Jay? Oh, they get so much coverage for the dollar. It's astounding. Yes. Coverage. Coverage like a 19-channel cap. We really are all about the gut health. Visit OutrageousBaking.com. And also, interested brain hacker, thanks for listening, my friends. The contact info for everyone will be in the podcast notes. Do you have an idea for a topic? Please email me, Pete, at NeuroNoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. This is going to be a pretty good one for YouTube. Jay did a nice job, as usual. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And then again, hey, if you really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon. Cue the music. Happy birthday (laughs) to you. Happy birthday birthday (laughs) to you. you. Happy birthday, dear Jay.